Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on this week's show, I will reunite the guys from the UCF Roundtable that we did back last August as we did a question and answer session to preview the 2019-2020 season. What we'll do on this show is look back at how we answered it and what really turned out. That's all coming up in just a few moments. First, a couple of uh, items of note. As you know, this week would have been Masters Week. But of course, that has been canceled or rather postponed as now they're talking about playing the Masters in November, which would be an interesting uh, uh, take on how to watch the tradition unlike any other. And at least ESPN, CBS going to come through with some classic Masters rebroadcasts for us. So we get to ride the legacy train a little bit longer and enjoy those great memories. And now... Finally, UFC 249 has been canceled. UFC had continued to uh, press forward, uh, having events with uh, no fans in attendance. And as they were trying to do 249, ESPN, the four letters, stepped in and kind of pulled, flexed a little bit of muscle. I know Dana White probably did not appreciate that, but... Uh, ESPN, of course, a big multimedia partner with UFC and utilizing some good judgment finally. So uh, there is that news. And um, if you don't follow Dale Murphy, the former Atlanta Brave great should be Hall of Famer on Twitter, I would suggest you do so. He's got to do something pretty cool. You know, it was back in 1982, the Atlanta Braves started 13-0. and on their way to a uh, playoff berth that season. And each day, Dale Murphy is uh, posting on Twitter uh, what was going to happen that night. So that's kind of cool stuff. For example, today being Thursday, um, as far as the what would be the third game of the season, back in 1982, he had a first inning home run as the uh, Braves beat the Astros in their home opener to start the season 3-0 on their way to 13-0. So uh, Dale Murphy, always a great follow on Twitter, has a great uh, uh, Power Alley podcast, which is still on hiatus for the moment. But uh, when that resumes, you'll definitely want to check that out. And uh, definitely check out Dale on Twitter for that. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome back four guys who do a great job talking and covering UCF sports as we convene our roundtable from last August. Let me introduce them to you one by one. First up, we have from Knights 24-7, Jason Beatty. Jason, how are you, and are you staying, staying healthy right now? Thankfully, I am. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, a pleasure to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when the calls come out, like, oh, yes, I have time. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that is exactly right. Up next, we have 
from the Black and Gold Banneret. He also covers the Magic. He covers uh, women's softball. Eric Lopez. Eric, how are you? Doing good. Been locked in for a little while and uh, not covering any of that. So that's why I'm, I'm available for you here today, tonight. But doing good. Doing good overall. Good. And always, a, always an opportunity to talk UCS sports makes everybody happy. And also, speaking of UCF sports, and is really the man I call the godfather of the digital age of covering UCF, Brandon Helwig from UCFSports.com. Brandon, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm hanging in there and being home uh, 99% of the time, not really going anywhere except the store. So things, things could, could be worse. I'm, I am uh, hanging in there. That's excellent. And my colleague from the Nightline Sports Network, co-host of the Sons of UCF podcast, Adam Eaton. Adam, how are you, my friend? Jeff, I'm just glad I can stop doing seventh grade math right now. So my uh, you know, <laughs> area, diameter, none of that's my specialty. So hopefully I'll do a little bit better on UCF tonight. Yes, well, the good news is there will be no math. Uh, so there we go. So basically what we're going to do is I'm going to uh, kind of, uh, for our audience to Go through the last time we got together back in August, right before the season. I asked this panel questions about how they thought the season would go, and I have recorded their answers, so I got to go back and listen to the show. And um, here we go. So our first question was, who you thought the starting quarterback was going to be for the Knights to start the season? We all, to a man, thought Brandon Wimbush, but we also all thought to a man that the quarterback battle wasn't quite exactly decided by that point, and as we all well know, Dylan Gabriel was the man. Jason Beatty, your thoughts on last season? Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of our guesses preseason were, you know, pretty well understanding. I don't remember exactly when in August we had recorded that, but August twenty first. I remember, I remember uh, when when they did name Brandon Wimbush the starting quarterback, you know, Josh Heupel said Dylan Gabriel would get some playing time in the first game against FAMU. Um, and obviously I, I can't say exactly if we all expected him to start against FAU on the road. Um, but overall, I think, you know, for a freshman quarterback and, you know, he's not your average freshman quarterback as I've written before. Um, I think he didn't surprise the people who have been watching him since the spring last year, but um, you know, a lot of the fans probably didn't expect to see that much out of a freshman quarterback like him. And he did definitely show that out. Eric Lopez, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Jason. I mean, I think, you know, perhaps the surprising part was that Dylan got the keys in the FAU game that quickly. Uh, I think when we made our predictions, we thought maybe, you know, kind of go slowly. But the other actress wild card about all this was Daryl Mack, who actually got some reps once he came back. And, uh, so that was fascinating to see because they, we were playing the guessing game. Oh, hey, Max coming in for a series or two. So I think we all kind of figured it was going to be one of those years of the quarterback. But I think the good news is I think Dylan Gabriel showed that the, the, the future is bright and that really earned it with his good play as a freshman quarterback. And I think actually, honestly, I kind of feel better about it than I thought I would have. Uh, I didn't know he'd be played that well that quickly to, to take the reins offensively considering he was just a true uh, freshman. So I think all things considered, it played out probably even better than uh, you could have expected from a UCF perspective with the production from the quarterback position. All right, Brandon, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Eric. Like, all his thoughts are basically the exact same thoughts I have. I wasn't really surprised at all that Dylan eventually took over as starter. I mean, it's really hard to know 
you know, without practice being open to, to really know how things are going. But just, you know, the buzz, I call it the buzz, you know, the stuff you hear from, you know, donors can get to go to scrimmages every once in a while, you know, hear stuff from, you know, players, and they tell their parents and you kind of hear it, you know, through that chain about, man, that Dylan Gabriel's really been looking good. He's very accurate. There's a, there's a lot of hype about him. And we had seen Brandon Wimbush in the spring game, didn't really overly impress. And then even in that season opener, uh, really was not that impressive. I mean, I was surprised at what happened the next week with Wimbush basically out of the equation completely and basically the keys being handed completely over to Dylan Gabriel. That was a little surprising, but the fact that Dylan Gabriel eventually took over as starting quarterback, that was something just based on the buzz that I figured was going to happen at some point. I just maybe didn't think it was going to happen, you know, by game two. Adam Eaton, what say you? I mean, first of all, that just seems like so long ago that we were having this discussion about Brandon <laughs> Bush. Um, and it kind of strikes me as like one of those non-controversies that I think we all spent a ton of our energies either talking on our shows or, or typing in our columns about this. And it turned out really to be much ado about nothing. I think from my perspective, when you saw Dylan Gabriel take the field second half against FAMU, you could just tell he kind of had an it factor. And I know it was FAMU and, and there's always questions about competition. But at that point, he, he just had an it factor. He had a moxie about him. And I think at that point, I, I remember thinking to myself, okay, this kid's going to be something special. I don't know that you knew how soon he'd be on the field to be that special thing that we knew he'd be, but you saw that in that second half against FAMU. And so when he, when he was trotted out there against FAU, while there was a bit of a, a, a take back moment for me, uh, you know, based on what I saw against FAMU, you could tell pretty quickly that he was, he was the future of UCF. And I applaud Heupel for making that decision because you know, hype's, you know, pretty conservative in some respects. And, and uh, you know, to, to roll a dice on a true freshman quarterback, that just tells you that he saw a lot more than we all saw behind the scenes to make him feel comfortable with Dylan Gabriel. Um, and so I, I tip my cap to, to hype for making that call early on. But that just seems like such a long time ago. And, and one of those, like, non-controversies we look back at it overall. Yeah, and you probably would have been more controversial had, you know, DJ Mack been healthy because he would have been the incumbent coming in and most likely probably the starter. But uh, as we all know, it was Dylan's and it will be Dylan's for a while. So the, the next question we posed was, since the Knights were coming off another undefeated regular season, would they run the table again and who would be their toughest test? So Jason, your answers were Stanford and Pitt. And of course, Pitt ended up being the Pitts. <laughs> Yeah, I, I traveled to that game in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, it could have been a lot worse than the score shows, the final score of 35-34. Um, you know, they, they were down a lot, and that's where I think Dylan Gabriel kind of stepped up, but it was still obvious, you know, mistakes would riddle this team. Uh, and, and actually, if you look at majority of the losses, obviously all coming on the road, it was turnovers, it was mistakes, it was poor decisions. Um, you know, some fans might call on the coaching in late-game situations or or first down plays or third down plays. And, uh, you know, going back to the quarterback competition and the quarterback discussion, just using the quarterbacks and the different quarterbacks, eventually when Daryl Mack did come back, using them situation, situationally, um, you know, you look at the losses and they all had a common theme. Uh, I think the Tulsa loss hurts the most. Obviously, a team like Tulsa, I didn't think they'd lose that game, but, you know, it doesn't surprise me as we watch the game. Uh, you know, tough, tough game at, at Cincinnati on a Friday night. You know, they, they were hungry for beating UCF. Uh, obviously losing at Pitt the way it happened. I think a lot of fans real, thought they could come back and win that game. And, 
including myself. Like I said, I was there. Um, how they handled Stanford the week before, I thought they'd be fine against Pittsburgh. Uh, but, but again, I think the Tulsa loss, you know, really just that one hurts the most. You're, you're really scratching your head after that one. Yeah, I went to the pit game as well, and I can tell you, you know, the fact that the Panthers, that was their Super Bowl, and mm-hmm. and uh, they put everything they had into that, uh, and they always have that one game every year where they knock off somebody they probably shouldn't. Eric, your pick was Houston, and oh. of course it was probably oh. for a lot of different reasons, yeah. <laughs> and at least it was a tough game for a half, but uh, obviously the Houston game turned out to be different for the fact that there was no longer deer at King. Yeah, yeah. This is sometimes this is a great uh, example of sometimes you overthink uh, the obvious answers, right? Like, uh, but yeah, I mean, I going in, I remember I was very high on Houston. Derek King was, you know, I thought could be the player of the year in the league. Obviously, I had no idea that he was literally going to just redshirt the year and then transfer afterwards, and Houston would turn into a soap opera in that regard. So obviously, I was wrong on that. Although, like you said, Houston did play him pretty well at home. Actually, uh, you could even make the argument that might have been the most competitive home game for four quarters anyway that UCF have had all year. Maybe if you want to count ECU's comeback in the second half. But, um, no, obviously I was surprised by the Pittsburgh game, um, especially how it unfolded. Uh, I didn't see that. I mean, I agree with Jason. I'm in the camp like Jason was after the Stanford game. I didn't even blink that they would struggle with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was kind of had didn't look that good going into that game. I think the problem is, some of the players on the team probably also thought the same thing and probably <laughs> part of the reason why we dug ourselves that hole in that game. But obviously in retrospect, the, the obvious answer, and I want to say, if my memory is correct, I think Brandon's going to get that one right, was Cincinnati Friday night. That was the one that was the, was, should have been the answer. But I think we kind of wanted to think outside the box a little bit. But um, definitely a couple of the games uh, that Jason alluded to, uh, Pittsburgh I was surprised and Tulsa I was surprised. Uh, by how those games unfolded. Cincinnati, not so much, because obviously Cincinnati was the team that we thought was going to be the team you have to get through to win the division, which obviously did not take place. Yeah, and Brandon, as a matter of fact, did say Stanford, Houston, and Cincinnati were the games that he thought would go. be the, See, the he's toughest smarter. on the he's schedule. Smarter. That's, that's, why he, that's why he's the smart one. That's why he's the smart one. Yeah, yeah. I think I was surprised at how easy the Stanford game went. I mean, you know, I, I, I think we all kind of knew that they had, kind of fallen off from where they had been in years past and they had some questions and everything, but I didn't think that Stanford game was going to be the blowout that it ended up becoming. I really, the most, the most disappointing part of the season for me was just seeing all the momentum that was built up after that Stanford game and just the whole nation continuing to talk about UCF again and whether they deserve to be in the playoff. And, you know, if they could keep it rolling, where would they be in the initial playoff rankings when those got released, you know, later in October and everything. And it was just kind of disappointing to see that come to a crashing halt. I guess it would have been anyway if that Cincinnati game would have, would have gone the other way. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm, that was the most disappointing one for me with just seeing how everything ended in that pick. Because like Eric said, after they handled Stanford, I, did, I mean, I know you're going on the road to play, play, play Pittsburgh and, you know, they've got really good athletes and everything. But I just, after the previous week, I didn't, it wasn't in my head at all that they could potentially lose that game. But, but Cincinnati, I mean, everyone kind of circled that game going into the season Friday night. And really, we think about it, uh, pretty much two of the three losses, I think, were Friday night games for UCF this year. I don't think anyone expected that that Tulsa game uh, to end up the way it did. But if anyone was at Tulsa and just the atmosphere or really the lack of, I mean, there's like literally like maybe like 500 people in the stands 
it was cold. It was one of the coldest games that I have been to uh, as far as UCF goes. I don't think, you know, UCF with majority of guys being from Florida, I don't think they just, they were not up, up for that game, whether it was the atmosphere, they were shivering. It was just, it was just one of the worst games to be at period. So, so the end results, I mean, it's not, not an excuse. But I'm kind of not shocked just because that game was just weird for a million reasons. Yeah, and as I've been known to say, nothing ever good happens in Tulsa. <laughs> Adam, uh, <laughs> you had you had uh, predicted Stanford and Houston as the uh, tough games on the schedule. Oof, Oof yeah. That. Yeah, I mean, Stanford for me, I, I think that the guys touched on earlier. You know, I think looking back on it now, my, my thought process was we were just playing Stanford. We were playing a, a nation at that point, right? Because this was a Power Five team. You know, we, how would UCF show up against Power Five teams? They're not motivated to play them sometimes, and so on and so forth. So, I looked at this one and said, "Hey, it's not necessarily about the eleven guys to line it up on the other side of scrimmage. It was about a nation and kind of getting and 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 earning the respect that I think that UCF had shown over the previous seasons. And obviously, to to, to the point of the guys, you know, so far, I mean, that that was a blowout. My only contention with that game is the score makes it look a lot closer than it did with that garbage touchdown, but. I mean, that game was over in, in the first half. Uh, Houston, same thing at the Deer King factor. I mean, who saw that coming, right? I think it's an interesting trend that, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Obviously, a lot of unique things happening right now in college football and whether or not seasons are being played. So perhaps that slows that trend down, but that's a, an interesting trend to, to think through. You know, I think the interesting thing about it is, is really, we also forget about the Tulane game. I mean, the Tulane game was also a, a pretty close game, you know, coming off a loss to Tulsa. You know, at that point, there was, you know, half the fan base, the sky was falling, half the fan base, it's going to be okay. It's only a couple losses. We've all been there before. And, and Tulane, it's a, tough, it's a tough place to play. They have a unique offense, and, uh, and they struggled a little bit and ultimately pulled it out. Um, and so I think that's another game that we forget because it kind of gets lost in the shuffle after the, the third loss there. But Tulane actually, to me, turned out to be a game that, you know, you, you're on the edge of your seat the entire thing, and you probably wouldn't have thought that heading into the season. But you know, as much as Stanford turned out to be a blowout, I, I'll stand by that just because I don't think we were playing 11 people across the line of scrimmage. I think we were playing a whole nation of voters and, and naysayers and, and all kinds of doubters throughout the, throughout the country. Yeah, and that's a great point about the uh, Tulane game because that really was a one-possession game most of, the, most of the afternoon. And, you know, they were an onside kick away of getting another possession and another opportunity there as well. I had picked Houston and Cincinnati, and, you know, I think obviously Cincinnati – uh, was going to be the team, as you guys had alluded to earlier, that, we're, that we were going to have to best in order to win the division there. So our next question after that was, what player were you excited to watch on offense last year? And Jason, I'm going to have to get, like ring the bell twice for you because you said Gabe Davis, and your most telling comment was, what's he going to do to uh, show what he's ready for the next level? Yeah, I mean, there was a period where he was just touchdown after touchdown after touchdown, and he did, you know, kind of uh, slow down a little bit offensively productive, and obviously defenses were double-teaming him, and that's why you see an uptick in Trey Nixon and Marlon Williams and Jacob Harris. Uh, but, you know, his performance against Stanford proved he was ready to play on Sundays. It really did. Uh, he was just – throughout the entire season, he was just that constant, consistent wide receiver that – if, if Dylan wanted to throw it up there, Gabe was going to go up and grab it. Um, and you've seen that, you know, obviously, I, I don't know where he's going to get drafted. Obviously, I think he will be a mid-round draft pick. Uh, but that doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's, we, knew, we knew what he was going to be, uh, and he, he really showed it out this season. 
And Eric, your pick was Adrian Killens, who certainly had a solid senior season in a Knights uniform. Yeah, and when he had when he got the ball, I uh, I thought he was uh, he did great. And uh, times I wonder why he didn't get the ball more, <laughs> um, in particular in the losses. Uh, but you know, I always enjoyed a- a- Adrian play. Uh, it was exciting to see him play as well. He did in his last home game. Uh, I mean, remember he was like I believe the first official guy to come here on board when Frost arrived. Yep. And uh, provided so much excitement over his four years uh, with the receiving game and then a kicking game. I mean, I was watching the other day, I was re-watching the uh, South Florida game in 2017, the Warren I-4 classic one, and how Killing was so involved and such a big factor in that game early on. Um, so I was, you know, I, I enjoyed watching him play every time I did. I feel bad for him currently because the way everything is played out, um, he's not going to probably get the uh, a legit shot here in the NFL as far as draft is concerned because he didn't get a pro day. He didn't get some extra looks from NFL teams because of the circumstances that we're in. So he might, whereas Gabe Davis will be fine, somebody like Adrian might get hurt uh, by the lack of the process, some of the process being kind of uh, dismissed. But uh, I've always got fond memories of Adrian. I always enjoy watching him, and I always thought he was exciting. And I was one of the camps that felt, give him the ball 10, 15 times, and uh, he'll make things happen. So uh, that, that was uh, my thought. And I thought for the most part when they did, uh, it worked out well. Yes, and he was always an exciting player to watch in his career at UCF, no doubt about it. Brandon, your choices, you put two names out. You put in Trey Nixon and you put out Otis Anderson. And, of course, Otis Anderson uh, certainly had his moments uh, on the field. Trey Nixon you know, certainly was second fiddle to Gabe Davis. Yeah, I, I think when you look at Otis, you know, coming off the previous year, he had, he had kind of faded a little bit after you know, playing such a big role in, 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 in Frost's season in 2017. You know, he kind of took a step back, at least, you know, compared to the other running backs, you know, in uh, 2018. And this compared to AK and Greg McCray running back-wise, they were trying to play him more wide receiver, you know, didn't really take a, a real big hold there, but, you know, heard a lot of, you know, a lot of good things about him heading into last season. And, you know, uh, when it was said and done, and, and maybe had a little bit to do with, uh, with Greg McCray being injured for a few games, but, you know, Otis Anderson, he ended up being the team's leading rusher um, uh, last year and, and obviously played a major role at, at, uh, at wide receiver as well. So, you know, I, he obviously had a really great year and, you know, hopefully knock on what everything uh, goes on his schedule this year. I think he's going to have an even better senior year coming up. Uh, but Trey, Trey Nixon, obviously the easy, easy answer was going to be Gabe Davis, but I was just kind of curious to see how Trey was going to, you know, step up from his first season here at, at UCF and, you know, he's talked about becoming a more of an all-around receiver. I know that's something. He's one of the few guys we got to talk to actually during spring this year. But, but yeah, I'm just kind of anxious to see how he continues to evolve and, and, and gets better. He's kind of been, I don't know, sort of, I don't know if it's a knock, but he's kind of been one-dimensional maybe a little bit in his time here. He, he can either go go deep and, you know, maybe, maybe come down with the ball. That's about it. He doesn't you know, usually fight and come down with balls the same way Gabe Davis was. Uh, so obviously, you know, he had, he improved on his, on his previous year, but I think a guy like Trey, uh, I know we're not, not talking about this coming up to you, but he's a guy who, who, who can really stand to improve even, even a lot more. And Adam, you also had Otis Anderson as one of your picks. And also you had mentioned the name Marlon Williams, maybe not a lot early out of him, but I thought he came on pretty nicely as the season progressed. Yeah, he did. I think, you know, going back to Otis quickly though, I think, you know, Brandon touched on it. So 113 carries led the team in carries in 2019. Uh, led the team in yards, 726, fourth in catches, 31, 31 receptions on the year, eight total TDs, plus the punt return TD against Pittsburgh, which I think none of us will ever forget. I think that was the moment we thought we were coming back in that game. 
but here's the thing that with Otis that I think, you know, gets lost. And this is no disrespect to the other guys. I mean, um, I obviously haven't played football, so I, I don't know how this feels. But durability. I mean, he's been there every single game. And, and that's not to say that, that injuries are the fault of any one player. But Otis is a guy that when, when we needed him and we called on him, he was there, you know, last season and particularly this season. And so I, I really um, admire that that part of him. You know, he learned the punt return game. And, you know, if you follow him on Twitter and you follow his family on Twitter, he gets a lot of flack for every time that thing, you know, bounces off the chest plate there. But he took on punt returns, which was not something I think he was accustomed to. Um, and he, he's adjusted pretty well to that. He's been the Swiss Army knife. And, and this year with the injuries, he stepped up big time. And I think you saw his, his production and performance. So, you know, I, I really feel good about Otis coming into, into his last season. And I think he's – He's poised for a big one. As is Marlon Williams. Listen, there's there's no kid on that team I think that fights harder than Marlon Williams. I mean, you saw the Gasparilla Bowl. His jersey was down to half an M, a period, and his number. <laughs> um, and that's because that kid just fights for every ball. He had multiple catches this year where he literally just just jumped up and just outwilled somebody for the ball. And uh, you know, he he takes contact well when he catches the ball on that on that sort of out route, you know, bubble screen situation. I mean, he's putting his head down and looking to knock somebody over. Um, and so I'm excited about his future this upcoming season. I think to your point, we saw glimpses of it in that Gasparilla Bowl, the sort of the Gabe Davis-less offense. Um, I think we'll have a big part of that next year, and I was really excited to see that. But, I mean, I, again, I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think any kid plays harder than Martin Williams out there. When he gets his opportunities, you know, he takes advantage of them. And I think he's going to be a big part of that 2020 offense whenever we see it on the field. Yeah, and my pick was Greg McRae, who was coming off a season as the leading rusher and had a terrific season. Um, but as he went into last year, you know, he had to split some carries with, uh, with Killens and with Otis. And, uh, of course, the injury bug caught it to him, so he missed a few games. So it was not quite the year that uh, Greg McCray had hoped for, but uh, hopefully uh, this coming season will be that. The obvious next question would be, who was the guy on defense you were most looking forward to seeing? And Jason brought up a couple of youngsters, uh, Jeremiah Jean Batiste and Tatum Bethune. Jason. Yeah, you know, at the time coming out of fall camp, I, as Brandon mentioned, there was a lot of buzz uh, around these two youngsters. And I think, uh, you know, specifically with Tatum, they, 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 both, they both got some playing time. You know, maybe didn't make as much as an impact as I had expected. Um, but, you know, for both being younger players, I was excited to see how they would play under Randy Shannon uh, in, that, in that system. I think those two guys you look to and, you know, definitely the future of the defense. Um, you know, maybe they didn't have as much of an impact as someone younger like Tremont Morris Brash did. Uh, but I think those two guys are coming up on defense um, and they'll even be bigger this year. Okay. And Brandon, your uh, sorry, Eric is next. Pardon me. Uh, Richie Grant was uh, your pick for the player you were excited to watch on defense last year. Certainly another solid season, but maybe not quite the season he had previously. No, you're right. I don't think he had the year like he had prior. I mean, <laughs> his best game was probably the last one, which was the bowl game, where he was such a dominant factor early on in that first half, I think forcing turnovers and things like that. But he really was kind of quiet for parts of the year. And you're right, didn't really live up to the hype. I don't know if it was, you know, just one of those things where the opponents adjusted and maybe kind of game plan to be away from him or whatever it was. You're right. He didn't really have the year I thought he would have. Uh, compared to what he had the year before and things like that and what he's capable of. And I think we saw that in the bowl game against Marshall. So, uh, yeah, that was a little interesting. I mean, I thought he was going to have a big year and we would have been talking about him uh, maybe even in the NFL draft if he had a big year. But uh, 
nonetheless, we'll see what happens But with him moving forward. But I was surprised he didn't have that uh, dynamic year that I thought he was going to have when we had this in August. And Brandon, your choice was Aaron Robinson, who had, of course, had the uh, concussion uh, the year prior and uh, lost most of that season. Uh, Aaron Robinson certainly uh, was, a, was a, a key component in the uh, Knights defensive backfield. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I couldn't remember who I said. And I mean, as the other guys were talking, I'm like, I hope not. I'm hoping I said Aaron Robinson because I really think, um, well, not just my opinion, but if you look at, at PFF, uh, Pro, Pro Football Focus, which, you know, breaks down every snap of every game, if you were going to select uh, an MVP of the UCF defense, it was Aaron Robertson. He was the top performer game in and game out. Uh, you know, things like that don't always show up in, in stats and everything else. But he had a monster year for a guy that, you know, everyone kind of goes back and remembers the first game of the previous year, the, the kickoff at UConn and, and just being so scared for just his health and his safety when he's, you know, he gets hit in the head and he's laying there and, you, you know, you're hoping that he's moving and he's okay. And, you know, I had to stay in a hospital a couple of nights in Hartford, you know, he never really, he never really came back completely. I, I forgot at what point he came back, you know, late October or something. He started to play in a few games here or there, but just really wasn't himself and, and wasn't the player I know they expected him to be. So I was just kind of wondering how that was going to translate, you know, now that he, he was going to be far, far removed from that, you know, season opening hit. And I know he had a really good spring uh, this, you know, last year and everything. So, you know, really was just, you know, like I said, it, it's not really my opinion. If you look at the at this, this uh, the analytical breakdown from PFF, really was UCF's best player. And, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, when we look ahead to this year, you know, the fact that he's coming back. And Richie Grant and Eric just talked about all these guys, for the most part, are, are coming back. Uh, you know, I, I have would have a lot of reason to be to be optimistic about things going forward. All right. And Adam, your choice was uh, in the linebacking core. You were with Eric Gilliard. Yeah, I was kind of in the same boat as Brandon. I had no clue what I picked. I figured I picked Eric Gilliard because I knew I was high and I'm coming into the season. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he had 42 tackles on the year. He was third in the team of tackles, five tackles for loss. Yeah, I guess it's probably not unfair to say he was kind of middle of the road. I don't think he, you know, he had one interception on the year. I don't recall a signature play from Eric Gilliard off the top of my head this, uh, this past season. But I think he was solid. You know, I think for me, I saw him step in for Pat Jasinski the year prior, particularly the game at Memphis. When, when Savage Pat went out in the second half, Gilliard was a monster uh, and was a big part of shutting down that run and Daryl Henderson and, and ultimately the comeback. To me, that was a moment I, I, I wrote his name down and I said, okay, this is a kid who's going to have a bright future at UCF. Maybe it's a sophomore slump, maybe getting used to the system. Again, he had solid numbers, but, you know, it certainly wasn't. I think he was – I thought he was poised to be sort of that next great linebacker at UCF and sort of take that next step forward. Um, and that's not to say he won't do that. You know, I, I don't think he, he did that here in year two, but I, I think he'll get a chance in year three. He's going to have some young guys around him now that, and some of the guys you mentioned earlier. Um, so he's somebody I'll continue to be a, a fan of and cheerlead for. But, um, you know, I, I think certainly there, there's still some runway for Eric to, uh, to make his mark at UCF. Yeah, and I went with uh, the Bulldog, Dade Evans, who uh, certainly it continued his, uh, his reputation as a tackling machine. He was certainly one of the leaders on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, I just love the tenacity that uh, Nate Evans plays with, that is for sure. So going into last season, the big burning question for a lot of folks was, are you concerned about special teams? Because we are losing a tremendous place kicker in Matthew Wright, tremendous punter in Mac Laddermilk. So that left it up to Dylan Barnes, uh, uh, Daniel Osteed, and uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, 
uh, Obarski a kickoff, Osteed uh, handling the punts. So uh, as we went into that season, I think all to a man, we were concerned with that. And Jason, how do you think the season went? Yeah, I think if a lot of fans are disappointed in, you know, how maybe sometimes the offense struggled or sometimes the defense made poor decisions or, or whatever the case may be for some of these losses, I think, honestly, Dylan Barnes, I mean, he went 69 of 70 on extra point attempts. He was, you know, almost 100% field goal, uh, making 15 of 17. I'm just looking over his stats right now. Um, you know, he was, you know, one for one from 50-plus and uh, 100% from 40-plus. I mean, I, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for him because obviously we we didn't know who he was. Uh, and Daniel Obarski coming in as a freshman, you know, I think at first it seemed like every single game he'd be kicking one ball out of bounds on a kickoff. And, you know, maybe the first four, five, six games, but as the season went on, his kickoffs, you know, he's got the distance. Um, and he his accuracy improved as the season went on. So I think, you know, in terms of the kicking, in terms of field goal kicking and, and kickoffs, that went overall pretty well. Punting overall, you know, needs some work, I would say. <laughs> All right. So then, um, Eric, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think the kickoff, the thing that strikes me is the kickoff. I felt like maybe every game we had a kickoff go out of bounds <laughs> or, uh, you know, give up some yardage. It just felt that way. Uh, I think Barnes was great from a field goal and extra point standpoint. I think Jason nailed it right. The return game was interesting. I, I remember I did an episode early during the year. You know, Otis Anderson, remember that punt return at Pittsburgh? That was pretty dramatic, exciting play. We really didn't get a lot of that going on in the special teams. Uh, and their numbers were way down as far as punt and kick return average. Now, some of that is, is because teams just didn't kick to them. Or they kicked it, you know, in the end zone. There wasn't as many returns as there was a few years ago. But, you know, when you think back to a 2017 and the weapon that a Mike Hughes was, on special teams, both on punt and kick return, we didn't really have that. I mean, I, actually, I remember. Then, if I remember, you guys can correct me. Adrian, who you know, fumbled a punt at Tulsa uh, in that game, if I recall. That was pivotal, one of the key plays in that game, if I recalled. So, um, it was okay. I think the, the irony is the thing we were most concerned about, which was the kicker, Barnes. He was fine. He was fine from a field goal and extra point standpoint. But there were some other areas of the special teams that maybe. Uh, could be better going into the next season, I think. Brandon, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, I pretty much agree with uh, both Eric and, and Jason there. Uh, I think, you know, everyone, I was pleasantly surprised. There's this probably a mild way to put it by Dylan Barnes. I think, you know, following in the footsteps of Matt Wright, I mean, who was like, he was on money, you know, in his four years at UCF. Uh, I think he's the all, UCF all-time scoring leader. You know, everything he was able to do the past few years was impressive. And we didn't know anything about these guys. I mean, you know, it thought maybe maybe Daniel Obarski thought maybe he'd be the field goal guy coming in as a true freshman. I know Dylan Barnes had been kind of hanging around on the team for a few years. I don't think he'd ever really kicked. I got to go back and look at the other years. I'm not sure if he ever kicked a field goal. I don't think he did until this past year. And he was really, I mean, one of the unsung heroes of last year's team just did his job. Uh, you know, I kind of agree with Eric a little bit. I mean, overall special teams, when you start looking at return game and the coverage of some of that stuff, it was it was lacking at times. Um, I agree uh, with Jason that Daniel Obarski, I think, got better as the season went on. You know, they, you know, they, with the new rules of the past couple of years and, you know, with, with, you know, fair, with doing a fair catch on kickoffs and everything, they're trying to, you know, pin the ball. They're not trying for the touchback. They're trying to have the ball land, you know, and then the corners within the fives to force a return and everything. 
And, you know, and that's just when you have a true, true freshman, you know, guy coming in, it's not, he's not going to be polished coming in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I can pretty much agree with those guys. I'll be kind of curious to see how things go this upcoming season because we don't know who's going to handle uh, field goal duties yet. Yeah, you know, that kind of drives me crazy, too, when they, when we have a kicker who's got the leg, to, you know, kick touchbacks, you know, getting cute with trying to pin him down in the corners, to me, seems to be a bad play on that respect. Adam, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first off, Dylan Barnes. I mean, uh, shameless plug, we had him on the Suns UCF about six weeks ago. And, and just talking to him on and off the air, you could tell what a competitor he was, which you know, I think someone said the point earlier, he had not kicked uh, in college prior to this season. The first time we saw him on the field in any sort of live action, I think that mattered. And, uh, and, and we forget, he had a huge field goal before halftime at Pitt uh, to really help us get momentum back. He was the offense that first half against Cincinnati. I think all things considered, you know, he, he had a phenomenal season for us. And, and one of those things where, you know, it was kind of a, a, a surprise out of nowhere. But when he talked to the kid, you could tell he was a competitor and he was waiting for his opportunity. And, uh, and you know, I'm glad he got that chance. Osteen and, and the punting, I mean, he was eighth in the American in yards per, um, which is probably not a good place to be. I think there's still some, some things to clean up from a punting standpoint. Um, I, I, I think I recall one pretty pretty bad shank he had. I think it was also the pit game that, that cost us some yards. So, I, I think certainly some things to clean up there. Obarski, you know, I think four straight games out of bounds. Um, you know, certainly I think those are things that, you know, we you know, we asked Dylan Barnes about when he was with us and said that they, 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 they worked with him a lot at practice and a lot of it was nerves. Um, and and they, they could tell some of that stuff kind of went out of the system as the year waned on. Um, but I agree with Eric. I think the return game was the part that we have so many explosive athletes that you would think at some point we, we would be a, a, a bigger threat in the return game, both on kicks and punts. And outside of that Otis return, it just didn't materialize this season. And, and maybe that was preserving guys from injury. Maybe that was Heupel saying, hey, I, you know what, let's, let's just let the offense get the ball. They're good enough. I, I guess I don't know. I'd have to make conjecture on that. But you'd think with all the explosive athletes, we would figure out a way to have some more game-breaking plays on special teams that we did this year. Um, and so I think that's the one area plus the punting that you look back and you say, if I was grading this thing overall, place kicking A, you know, punting special teams, um, you know, and, and returns probably in that, in that C range um, if I had that grade on the curve. All right. And then the next question was, who would be the team MVP? And Jason, you kind of piggybacked off Eric's pick. So we'll kind of, kind of hold off on that so Eric can give him, we can review Eric's answer. But you also had a secondary pick, and it was Richie Grant. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of – there were high expectations for Richie entering the season, you know, um, getting some preseason nods from – a lot of publications across the country. And I think, I don't know if it was teams not targeting him or, or whatever it may be. Um, but I think he, I don't think he, the season went as he planned or fans expected. Um, you know, I think he has the opportunity to come back and really uh, showcase his skill set for what we know him for. Obviously he still, you know, had a lot of tackles and uh, pass deflections, but in terms of the interceptions from the year before, um, you know, I think he could have done a little bit, better or had a stronger season and um, kind of unexpected. I think that's a name we kind of, you know, honestly didn't say a whole lot throughout the entire season. And obviously Aaron Robinson stepped up, uh, you know, in that. And uh, Antoine Collier stepped up as well. And Eric, uh, Jason had agreed with you and you went with a group pick of the offensive line. (laughs) Well, uh, Jason, don't listen to me. See, that's your lesson. Um, Well, the the offensive line, you know, it's funny, and going back, and I think Brandon can back me up on this. There were a lot of people within the program and just people around the program talking about how they 
this could be the best offensive line in program history. They love the depth, the guy's coming back. I mean, oh, we're going to be great, you know. And, and I kind of bought into that, and I thought that's going to be the key to the success. And I guess – and technically I'm right. Because <laughs> you can argue the games they lost, their offensive line got beat up. I mean, going back to the Pittsburgh game and the Cincinnati game in particular, they got physically uh, dominated by the defensive lines and really did not live up to those expectations that we were hearing uh, maybe in camp and things like that. And um, Brandon could speak more to that because he, he kind of talked to a lot of them. But I remember hearing that. And uh, – and a lot of people felt good about it, and they were not did not live up to those expectations at all. They struggled, and I think that's kind of what stunned I think a lot of us in particular mm-hmm. in their losses. They did not play as well. Some of that you could say, well, you have a freshman quarterback, maybe holds the ball too long, maybe you know things like that. Uh, maybe they were used to a certain way with McKenzie Milton is more mobile when he was playing, but still they did not live up to the expectations, and I think were a main part of the issues on their losses and why they didn't accomplish their goals they set out to do before the year, which was win the conference and get back to a New Year's Six. All right, and uh, Brandon, you can also comment on uh, on uh, Eric's thoughts on the offensive line, but your picks were Greg McRae, and you kind of threw a wild card out there in Brandon Winbush just in case he was going to have you know great success coming out of the shoot. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Eric in that, you know, I thought the offensive line obviously was going to have a much better year. I mean, there's, you know, we talk about buzz. We're talking about Dylan Gabriel and, and other people, but I mean, there was a lot of buzz. I mean, Eric's right. I mean, there's people that I trust that, you know, some people that get to go to practice, they get to watch a lot of practices and they've been around for years and they've seen, you know, Scott Frost teams and George O'Leary teams, and they've seen a lot of offensive linemen through the years and people like that were telling me that they thought this was going to be the best UCF offensive line ever. And so when you hear people like that who know a thing or two and have have a background in this sport, um, you know, I certainly had higher expectations for those guys. But, you know, I, you know, Cincinnati practiced all summer just for the UCF game to throw those guys a different front that they'd never seen before and they couldn't react to it. So there was a lot of things that went into it, but yeah, it was in in retrospect, I was shocked at, at, you know, how poorly at times the offensive line played. We said, uh, my, my picks were Brandon Wimbush, yeah, I'm not really sure why I did that. I might have been last, you know, on the round table and I didn't want to pick who else what other people had already picked. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I was giving credit to Josh Heupel working with quarterbacks and the fact that I don't think Wimbush had great quarterback coaching at Notre Dame just in terms of passing and I just thought, you know, him working with Coach Heupel throughout his spring and summer was gonna greatly improve that part of his game. Um, that didn't really happen or, you know, if it did happen, it didn't matter because he was here for one game and pretty much gone the next. Uh, yeah. And with, with, with Greg, Greg McRae, I mean, you know, we don't really know how he would have been in a full season, still had a really good year. You know, he had to miss a few games after getting, getting injured there in the latter half. Um, so yeah, I'm, you know, it was going to be running back by committee anyway between him and AK and Otis and Bentavious Thompson. So, yeah, I, I really can't, can't d- disagree with my pick there. Yeah. And, Adam, uh, you and I both also were on that bandwagon of Greg McRae as the team MVP. Yeah, I feel like if you were a Vegas, you know, um, oddsman, that was where the smart money was, right? We saw him uh, emerge late in, in, the, in the season the year prior. Uh, you know, we saw him in the Fiesta Bowl against LSU – I think we all were, were figuring he was sort of the, the bell cow back as much as you can be and sort of the, the, the four, sometimes five-headed uh, monster that is the UCF running back room. 
Um, and so certainly I think you saw flashes of it throughout the season. Um, you know, I think going into it, he was the guy that, um, you know, that we thought of. What's interesting though, Jeff, do I have it right? Did, did nobody pick Gabe Davis on the panel? Is that right? It, nobody did. Which is interesting wow. right? for, for four um, quote-unquote experts at UCF. <laughs> we, all, we all missed out on the guy who had, I don't know, 72 catches and 100, uh, 1,200 yards and 12 touchdowns. But I think, again, smart money going into the year was on, was on McCray. You know, and, and I think uh, he, it's, I'm really curious to see how he's, uh, how he's you know, looking this offseason. I've seen his, his ladder workouts on Instagram. He looks pretty sharp on the ladder in his front yard, wherever he's at, so I feel good about that. But um, I, I think he'll be a big part of the running back room this year. You know, obviously, I think uh, the injuries were, were a huge part about it. But, you know, maybe we should all take like a five-second, uh, you know, walk in the corner for not, none of us picking Gabe Davis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think, too, we might have been under the conventional wisdom that they might rely a little bit more on the running game with, with the, you know, change of quarterback uh, potentially as well. The last question we had in the uh, first go-round of our roundtable, is Josh Heifel respected nationally, and does he get enough love? And uh, Jason, your uh, answer was uh, pretty much that you felt like if he kept winning, he would get the respect. Yeah, I think a lot of people agree with that. Um, I don't remember what the other folks in the roundtable said, but um, I think a lot of people were impressed with, uh, obviously, after the Stanford game, I think I remember just all the national media, you know, really just, okay, this could be the year UCF. You know, you look at the small percentages that, you know, sites like 538 gave UCF of making the college football playoff. And, uh, you know, we weren't sure how they were going to handle a Power 5 team like Stanford. And, you know, the the percentages and the odds increased. And then obviously what happened at Pitt happened at Pitt. But um, I think he got a lot of criticism throughout the season. Obviously, Dylan Gabriel at times maybe, you know, cut him, maybe saved him or, or came to the rescue of him. Um but I think you look at some of the losses, and I think a lot of the fans have, you know, just appropriate criticism and certain play calls and how he handles certain situations. And um, I think overall, you know, I, I don't think he's going to get hired away anytime soon. I would put it to that. And Erica, both you and Brandon kind of echoed the same thoughts, and uh, it was that um, – he would be respected nationally, but a lot of it would depend on how he would do without McKenzie Milton. So, Eric, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think it depends on who you ask, right? I think nationally he's got a little respect still. Uh, he's been flown for some jobs. I think that'll continue moving forward. But yet, I think maybe even some of the fans are not kind of all there yet, right? I mean, they're, they're, some of them were disappointed with the way the season played out with some of the losses, people questioning some of the – uh, decisions and play calling. So um, I think it's still a work in progress. Obviously, if I had to guess right now, I think the national perception is that Luke Fickle is the guy in the league based on the job he's done at Cincinnati, especially with Mike Norvell now moving on from Memphis. So I think right now it's Luke Fickle that's probably the hot name you're going to hear. But I think that being said, if Josh, you know, we have a next season here and they win the league and they go back to New Year's Six, his name will skyrocket it. Uh, so it doesn't take long. He's right on the cusp, and I think he is respected by those that follow the game closely. But what's interesting is I think there are some fans that are still not uh, completely sold or maybe still have a bad taste in their mouth based on some of the losses uh, from this past year, especially the Tulsa game. I, I, remember, I remember the Tulsa game because I was at covering a Magic game, and I was following it um, at the Magic game. And there's a buddy of mine that works for the Magic who's a UCF alum. 
<laughs> and so we were in the magic locker room for a post game. And this was, uh, we were watching the game and he was on his phone and I, he had this mad, evil, angry look. And I'm like, Hey man, what's going on? He's like, we're losing. I'm like what? He's like, we're losing. And, and, and he went off on this rant right before we we're supposed to interview the magic players about some of the decisions made by the coaching staff. So <laughs> that doesn't tell you, you know, a little bit about where, uh, I guess, some of the emotions are with wins and losses and the coaching decision, Josh Heupel. That, that, that might be an example. So uh, hopefully uh, he's a great year away. Some of the fans will kind of get over that. But it was very interesting to see a lot of the negative reaction, which I'm sure, as Brandon can tell you, he, gets, he sees it first, firsthand all the time. Yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with Eric. What else is there? Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with just, you know, just the, the, the huge shoes that Scott Frost left and kind of how the fan base had evolved in a really short period of time. I mean, in 2015 wasn't that long ago, guys. And all of a sudden, UCF didn't win a game that year, which was, you know, should, never should have happened. But the, the reverse happened in that a lot of UCF fans thought UCF, UCF should never lose a game. And, you know, I'm like, you know, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen. And then Heifel the next year had the undefeated regular season. And of course, you know, you couldn't blame what happened in that Fiesta Bowl with McKenzie Milton going out and everything. But I almost think that Heifel uh, might have more respect nationally than he does from UCF's fan base. And, and you know, I don't know what it is, whether it's, it's the younger part of the fan base or the people who kind of jumped on the bandwagon in 2017. But I just feel like the, the standards people were holding Heifel to were just probably way too high. And, you know, um, I, I think a really big thing for him, I think going forward to kind of separate himself uh, from Frost a little bit as he's developed another quarterback, you know, like we all said last year, it's going to depend on how he does in the post McKenzie Milton era. And hopefully McKenzie can come back at some point, but the fact that he's developed a guy like Dylan Gabriel and, Thing, the kind of numbers he put up and just the outstanding freshman season he had. I think that helps Heupel's rep a lot, just, you know, for the fan base and, and nationally as well. I do agree that Luke Fickle is, is probably, you know, the hot name just because he won the head-to-head and, you know, they won the East Division last year and everything. Um, you know, who knows about, you know, jobs in the future with, you know, with what's going on right now in the world. And, and you know, a lot of these schools are going to have to, and even if there is a season, going to have to look at budgets and everything else. I think it's highly irresponsible to be, you know, firing coaches and have huge, huge buyouts to pay and everything like that. But I honestly think uh, probably the perception for Hypo might be better nationally than it is amongst this fan base. A lot of people still have not forgiven that, that Tulsa game and are still very angry about that, this and that. But I just think people need to get a little bit more realistic that, you know, UCF still had a, a really good season, and it's just not going to happen that they're never going to lose. And I think that's what a, a lot of people were, were kind of holding on to that, 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 that this team, for whatever reason, it was somehow immune from ever losing another game. And Adam, of course, I expect you now to have all the answers because you have the trademark on the Josh Heupel translator. Yeah, so first off, I agree with pretty much everything Brandon said. I think that's the interesting part about nationally. Every time a job opens up, if it's Baylor – you know, we're tracking planes, right? And, and and Josh's name comes up. And whether that's agents posturing or media just throwing names against the wall, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, with the, the sort of the underbelly of how that works. But you hear his name come up. So you, you, you think, obviously, he's got some respect and uh, he's, he's somebody that schools are looking at. I think the, the thing about it is more the local crowd, right? The the students, the alumni, the fans, and his, his perception there. And I think 
you know, I, I look back at that Memphis game, that 20, uh, 2018 championship game, when he came on the field and he was pumping his arms in the air and getting the crowd going. I think if you had pulled everybody in the audience at that moment in time, you would have gotten 100% of people who would have run through a wall for Josh Heifel. And so I think he has that in him. I personally think, and again, this is not a shameless uh, Suns UCF plug, but I think a lot of it is his personality. He's, you know, he, he's very coach speak. He doesn't share a lot. And I, I think that for some people, because they don't quite understand what he's thinking about all the time, that they have a hard time, um, you know, reconciling what they see on the field. And trust me, I don't think he owes us that explanation. He doesn't work for me. Um, so he doesn't owe me an explanation on what he did on second and seven. It's great to hear it because it helps me talk about it and it helps me understand the show, but he doesn't owe it to me. But I think there's, there's a faction of folks out there that our society in, in some respects is just instant gratification and they want, they want wins and Brandon said it perfectly. They, they don't want to lose ever. And when you lose, they want to, they want you to stand in front of the microphone and tell you exactly why you lost and what you did wrong and how you're going to fix it. And Heifel's just not that guy. I mean, he, he talks in, in generalities and coach speak and, and that's probably the smart thing to do. But I think that's, that's what's turned some of the folks, I think, in, into thinking that he's not the, the coach that he is. I'll go on record right now. I, I, think he's a, I think he's a great coach. He's a young coach. We forget this. Year three as a head coach, uh, he's still learning. He, you know, he'll get better a, as a coach. I think he, he certainly made some missteps, and those are well documented. But I, I think his, his rep nationally is strong. I think if I have it right, and, and Brandon probably can correct me better than anybody, I think his buyout goes down after this season. And so I think we'll see if he has a good season this year and, and UCF is able to, to put a good run on the, on the, on the books. Uh, his buyout is in an acceptable range and assuming everything kind of goes back to quote unquote normal, you know, I think his name will come up again. And I think at that point we'll really see how folks feel about him when his name has come up for a job and we're scared he's leaving. I think then that's when you take the temperature and see how the fan base feels is, is when we get to those moments where there may be a thought of him leaving. I think you'll see people really, um, start to clamor for him to stay. And I think that's an indicator, hopefully, of how the the, the rational, logical fan feels about Josh Eichel. Yeah. And I think, interestingly enough, when you talk about the coach speak and everything, um, I was on the uh, uh, Nightline the morning after with Andrew Fagley uh, back during the football season on ESPN 580. And the question came up that, you know, somebody said, you know, that, that Heupel needs to cater more to the fan base. And, you know, my opinion is, well, once he starts catering to the fan base, he ain't doing his job coaching the football team. So I would rather put up with the coach speak than have him cater to the fan base and tell them everything. It would be nice if he would be a little more forthcoming, but I think on this side of the fence, I would rather him uh, still maintain well, that coach speak at the end of the day. Well, can, 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 I, can I say something? If, if people are saying that our critics think of this about Hypo and Frost was the same way, if not worse. Okay. Mm-hmm. Frost wasn't great in interviews. He didn't say anything either. And, you know, the only difference was that his last season at UCF, he never lost. I mean, that's really the only difference. Hypo, obviously, you know, you kind of, you know, after a while, he's like, oh, yeah, he's going to say this, he's going to say that. It's like clockwork. But really, people are saying this, but it's not like you were getting that with Frost. So I don't really understand. I, I see it. I see it, you know, every day. The message board on Twitter and everything. But I I really don't understand it because Frost wasn't great either in terms of, of being that rah-rah interview guy and kind of, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I know that criticism exists. I just, I just personally don't really get it. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say, let me say that I think the difference would be, I think with Frost, you saw him on TV go at it with officials, right? I mean, there were, we see at times, especially, you know, most of the time in the first year, he just get in their face, you know, arguing and yell with that. I think Adam makes an interesting point he brought up. You know, I, I remember when Josh Heupel did the whole, hey, get up, you know, that the crowd really got into that. Oh, yeah. So, and it was huge. And I think that's what they want. I, I think it's 
you're right. Coaches do coach talk, but like at the same time, uh, fans get excited when they see their coach all fired up in the sidelines. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I do think that has an influence because I think that was the case with Frost being a, 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 from that standpoint. And I think Scott was better in his last year with the yes. media. I'm not saying he was great, Brandon, but he was better. He, he opened up a little bit. I remember you and I were in that press conference for this USF game where he pretty, pretty much took a shot at the league. Remember, Brandon, when they said that USF had the two extra days to play and, and he was still ticked off about what happened the year before when USF ran the score. So he was starting to open up a little bit. We still haven't yes. seen that from Josh. And I think that's where some of the fans have a problem with, especially I think a lot of fans this past year questioned some of the play calling in the red zone. And, you know, hey, did he take ownership? One thing that Scott did was he also took ownership when something didn't go well. Hey, I didn't do a good job there either. We didn't do a play well, but he didn't do that. I think some of that, I don't think it's like theatrics. I think it's more of what the, the words are saying instead of the, the token same thing. Hey, we just didn't do a good job. You know, I yeah, think that's I just remember how, some of that. How- I remember how angry fans would be like after, after some of these losses and they, sure. you know, they'd watch the press, the press conference and be like, why did you ask him this? Why did you demand why he ran this play and why he didn't do that? I'm like, well, that's not exactly how it works in these post game things. I, I know you're angry about the game and there are certain plays, but just watch it. I mean, maybe in some respects, maybe some NFL press conference, I'm like, but that just doesn't happen in college football press conference for the most part when there's maybe four or five people on the road to post game or talking to a coach for like three or four minutes. You're not going to be angry and yell at them about specific plays. You know, that just doesn't happen. But it seems like people were just angry. You're right that people were angry about certain plays and results and they just, they wanted him to be forthcoming and frank you know right after the game and they weren't going to be satisfied if they didn't get it and i remember there was something i i don't know what happened i think it was that cincinnati game you know they do the post-game interview with mario with scott adams on the field for radio and i don't know what happened for whatever reason hypo did not do a post-game radio interview i don't know if it was the signal because there has to be a signal from the field to the booth he did a press conference with us and like people were just going nuts like you know they were ready to you know they wanted hypo fired just because he didn't do the post-game radio interview they were so angry about it i still i don't know what would happen then but you're right it was kind of this weird kind of fan dynamic like they were just looking for something from hypo that really isn't all that different from any other coach well, I'll tell you what, I'm making a note now. The next round table we do, we're going to just do it all on, on Josh Heupel because <laughs> I think we could go for days with that. All right. <laughs> so let me ask you guys this uh, from this past football season. It's a two-part question. What was your favorite moment from the season, and what was the most disappointing moment to you, Jason? Yeah, I think my favorite moment, I got to you know travel a lot this season. I mean, I might not be on the field, but personally, I hadn't been to – Pittsburgh or, or I traveled to Temple. I hadn't been to Philadelphia before. That Philly game was a lot of fun. It was cold. It was rainy. I hadn't been to that city before. City of brotherly love. I got to do some uh, tourist attractions and some sightseeing the day before the game. And the uh, that was just a really fun trip for me personally. That was my favorite moment. Uh, but on the field, I got to go, you know, just looking back and going to that uh, matchup against Stanford and uh, really Gabe Davis just stepping up and showing what he's made of. I thought, you know, how he handled uh, their cornerbacks. I know they had – the name's not coming to my head right now, but I know they had a really good cornerback, and he just completely burned them on one touchdown. And the photo I got of that play was uh, one of my better photos of the season. Um, so that would be my favorite moment on the field. But personally for me, uh, you know, I'm a graduating senior. Um, I can't say how longer I'm going to be covering UCF in the future or, or after graduation. Uh, but, you know, personally for me, traveling was just one of my – off the field favorite moments. 
And what would you say? You what was the most disappointing to you, Jason? You know, the most disappointing, obviously, I think a lot of people will point towards the Tulsa loss. You know, uh, you look at the first two losses and you, you kind of understand it. Okay, one's against a Power Five team, and the other is against Cincinnati. You know, they had their number. The they, they you know they had their number that night, and uh, just the Tulsa loss and and how that loss happened. And even if it wasn't a loss, I know we mentioned it earlier in this in this uh, recording, the Tulane game. I traveled to New Orleans as well, and just the feeling that, you know, if they would have lost that game, it would have been even more disappointing. And, uh, you know, there were just certain times of the season where it's – I wasn't even angry at some of the play calling, but I was more disappointed in it, um, how Josh Heupel might have handled things or, or how things might have gone down. And um, just the Tulsa loss really just, you know, put a damper on the season, I think. Eric, your favorite and most disappointing moments of the last football season? My favorite one is pretty similar to what Jason said, and, he, and the quarterback he's talking about is Polson Aldebo, there who is. was, <laughs> at, at the time, <laughs> was projected to go in the first round of the NFL draft. But I, I think the Stanford game, because the height, you know, the, the stadium was packed. It was a 3.30 kick. Everybody was excited. You know, I, I, Dylan Gabriel getting the start. I think we learned, all right, this is a big moment here. Because I remember going into that week, there were some rumors about, hey, you know, Mac might get cleared. He might get, you know. So, you know, there was a lot of, you know, gamesmanship stuff going on. And even though Stanford kind of had lost to USC the week before, uh, Brandon made a great point earlier. Like, this was a game where a lot of national media was, hey, this is, you know, people respect Stanford. So a lot of people were like, hey, this is a big game for UCF and the deal. And then they just destroyed them in that first half. It was unbelievable. And, and, and Brandon was right. And this is, and I'm going to steal his answer from earlier as maybe the, the most disappointing part. After that Stanford game, you got the sense. It was funny. Everybody was on the bandwagon. I remember Kurt Herbs, hey, this team is really jet. Everybody's like, this team's really good. And I almost remember the fan base were like, wait a minute, what are we supposed to do now? We're supposed to be ripping these people and not like all of a sudden they're defending it. And, and you're like, wow, all of a sudden everybody was on the – and then you lose the Pittsburgh game. And it just deflated a lot of things. And then you go on and lose to Cincinnati. You don't win your division. You lose to Tulsa, uh, which just – Oh, I mean, that was rock bottom. I mean, you know, they were, what, a 17-point favorite in that game and uh, to lose that way. So I think the, the, the high of that Stanford first half is something I'll never forget. That's the highlight for me of the year. But I think Brandon nailed this. The most disappointing part of it is you had all this optimism, right? You've been fighting, arguing, yelling, respect, we should be in this, and then you're getting it. You're getting it. You're getting it. And then you just, oh, it just goes away. It just goes away, and that's the, the, the part that stings. And, and so I, I would say that's my, uh, my positive and my disappointment of the year. Brandon, how about yours? Yeah, I mean, to kind of go off what Eric was saying, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that was the most fun. I mean, it wasn't the games themselves. It was, it was after these wins and just all the national media talking about you, about, you know, why you're great and why you should be, you know, in the playoff. These other people are you're kind of uh, talking you down and going back and forth with other fan bases and all that kind of stuff. Oh, what are you going to be, where are you going to be when the polls come out and arguing with pollsters and, you know, saying they're biased and all that stuff. And, you know, then at least they were, they put UCF this week. And, and that was as much fun as, as the games them, themselves. So, you know, following that Stanford game and all the hype that that, that generated and, you know, everyone was like, yeah, you know, UCF's going to go undefeated again, you know, you know, what will it take to get in the playoff? And so that was just a lot of fun just outside of the, the game result. And, Obviously, that came crashing down with the loss at Pitt. So that's kind of like, yeah, that's probably that, that Stanford was sort of the peak. And then, you know, the, bu- the, the bubble got deflated 
losing the pit. You know, I know that that Tulsa game was, I guess you could call rock bottom and everything else. And it was disappointing. You didn't know at the time you thought Cincinnati had a chance to stub, stub their toe, but they didn't. I mean, it wouldn't have mattered. You said could have beat Tulsa. It didn't matter. Cincinnati won the rest. Of, they, they didn't lose the second game. Um, they still won, you know, the East. It wasn't like if UCF beat Tulsa, that meant they would have won the, won the division. It didn't really matter at the end of the day. It was a bad loss. But, yeah, I think when, when I when I look back at where the seed, it maybe wouldn't have mattered if UCF obviously would have lost to Cincinnati a couple weeks later. But that were just, that's, that's what, I, what I think a lot of fans miss is just – being in the national spotlight and then that it's hard to, hard to do if you're a group of five team you know to kind of get get to that point it's it's bigger than your own conference game you got to win all the other games and kind of kind of get talked about that same breadth of, of maybe breaking the playoffs so i think that's where everyone kind of wants to get back to and so for me yeah that kind of piggybacks you know most exciting or best moment and then most disappointing all right adam give me your best and worst yeah, so we did this on the show, so I want to be consistent. I, I said the uh, Otis Anderson punt return touchdown against Pitt, so I think that's – I'll stay with that one too. But I will throw in there just a, a heartstring moment. I'll take off the field here. Mackenzie Milton senior night, you know, walking on the field and, and seeing him out there. I know that that's probably a bit of a, a heartstring moment, and, and uh, it's one of those – you know, I, hopefully there's more to, to come for the Mackenzie Milton story. Uh, but I think seeing him walk on the field senior night, seeing the emotion his parents had and – you know, the crowd's reaction to seeing him out there. Um, if, if you saw that on, on TV, if you watched that in the stands, you didn't get goosebumps, um, you know, there may be something you need to get checked out because that, that was, a, that was a, a cool moment. So I'll go with those two for my best. Uh, the worst, I, I think the guys talked about it a little bit, but I'm going to take a bit of a nuanced stance. I'm going to go penalties. Um, and I know we talked about offensive line and discipline. So UCF was 126 out of 130 teams in terms of average penalty yards a game at 73.2, uh, 111 yards uh, essentially um, in penalties a game in some respects. Uh, the discipline, I, I think, really fell off this past season. I think we saw a lot of dead ball penalties. We saw a lot of offensive, offensive line penalties, which the guys talked about. So I think the discipline side was the most disappointing. I think there's too many times in that arena specifically that we shot ourselves in the foot. And, you know, we asked every guest who ever came on our show, how do you, how do you coach penalties? What does the coach tell you in penalties? And they're all like, yeah, we talk about it. It's a focus. But it just never seemed to be something that UCF got their hands around this season. And I think that was disappointing. There were plays that we left on the field based on our own, um, you know, on our own mistakes. So I'll, I'll go penalties as probably the most disappointing thing from the 2019 season. All right. And so my favorite moment, uh, just to go a little bit different, is to say the space game. I uh, a, a a uniform nerd, more or less. So I love what they did this year. They've gotten the space uniforms better each and every season, and that has to be the most spectacular helmet I've ever seen in my life. So that's going to be my my best. My worst is uh, you know I got to go back to the pit game because I was there. You know, usually I try to get one road game a a season in, and uh, it just you know to me UCF was so much the better team. And we just did not get the 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 same usual UCF team uh, in that in that limelight, especially the way they they kicked Pittsburgh like a like a tomato can the year before. Uh, you know, I didn't expect it to be that same result, but I still felt like you know they only basically played a good quarter and a half and had a ten point lead based on that quarter and a half after they slept through the first part of the game. So to me, that was the most disappointing part. So last question. 
And, you know, I don't want to speculate on when and all that stuff because, you know, we just don't know enough right now to talk about if and when there's going to be a college season. But just pretending things were normal, do you think UCF would reclaim the American in the upcoming season? Jason? Yeah, if things were normal, um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to to put them up there. I know, you know, Vegas, for some reason, just dropped their – you know, I saw Caesars uh, Sportsbook drop their, you know, uh, win totals, and they had UCF at 10.5 wins. Um, obviously, I'd, I'd, I think Dylan Gabriel is going to come back better than ever this season. Uh, obviously, we have to see, wait and see what happens with Mackenzie Milton. Um, you know, we talked about Adrian Killens and Gabe Davis not going to be there, but they're still returning, um, you know, a lot of the offense, and a lot of the defense. Obviously, still questions on special teams and how that's going to go, but, you know, I, I, I don't see any reason why not. Um, you know, you get Cincinnati at home this year, you get Temple at home this year, um, you know, a couple of similar to a couple of years ago, you know, they don't leave the state of Florida for the month of November, uh, which is always beneficial for a team like this. Um, you know, non-conference will be interesting, but obviously if they can, you know, you know, go through and, you know, maybe come unscathed or, or take one loss there, um, you know, at Memphis on a Friday night, if, if things go normally, that's going to be a tough game. Um, and, and obviously at Houston in October on Halloween night, um, that's going to be a tough game. But I think all signs point towards, you know, UCF, you know, at least being in a contender uh, for the conference championship and uh, playing in that game. Eric, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think if, I, I think if we, we did a preseason poll, I think UCF Cincinnati are probably the two teams that get picked. And remember, there are no divisions this up, for this upcoming college football season. So in theory, UCF and Cincinnati are scheduled to play the week before Thanksgiving, could play again a couple weeks later for the conference championship, depending on how you feel with both sides. I mean, I think UCF's got a very manageable schedule. The Memphis game's in a Friday night. Obviously a new staff with Memphis. Mike Norvell's not there. Uh, you got Cincinnati at home. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Houston's on the road. That's a tricky game, but you don't know what to expect from Houston. Um, so I, I think it's a manageable schedule. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to be, if not the favorite, co-favorites probably with Cincinnati for the American Conference. And I think those, that's going to be the expectations, I think, for the foreseeable future. There's a lot of players coming back, a lot of talent coming back. And that's, uh, I think that's for the foreseeable future will be the expectations uh, for UCF and the American. Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I agree with pretty much everybody else. Uh, I think with – who UCF is bringing back, um, you know, obviously with the season that Dylan Gabriel had, I mean, if we would have been talking about, you know, Brandon Wimbush riding out last season as a starter, and then we'd kind of be talking about what we were talking about all last summer, like who's going to be the quarterback, but, but having Dylan Gabriel come back and I think he's only going to be better as a sophomore and, and just looking how the schedule's laid out. It is a, it is a friendly schedule. Yeah. There, you know, obviously there's some tough games. You got to go on the road. You got to play Memphis on a Friday night. Uh, you play Cincinnati, but that's a home game. And as Jason said, you know, you don't leave the state in the month of November and, you know, you got to go at South Florida, but that's like a UCF home game. So that really helps. And, you know, I, I think with the way it is, you know, with there's no, no divisions and, you know, how they kind of came up with who plays who UCF avoids Navy and SMU who were two of the best teams in the West division last year. And, you know, no one really wants to play Navy and have to deal with their option offense and everything. And, you know, you look at teams like I got to pull it up, but I, 
I think Cincinnati might have to play. I don't know. If, if you don't have to play Navy, that's almost like a win, you know, because you don't have to deal with that. So I think the odds are much better that UCF either has a much better chance of going through the conference schedule, either, you know, 8-0 or 7-1 and or something like that, versus, you know, some of the other teams like Memphis or Cincinnati that – has to play Navy, SMU, they got to play UCF, and if they all got to kind of, they're going to beat up on, on each other. So I think the teams that UCF avoids, you know, does make it a, a friendlier path. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, beyond conference, you know, obviously it's going to be a big season opener against North Carolina. That should be a preseason top 25 matchup. Sam Howell is, him and Dylan Gabriel are pretty much the two top freshman quarterbacks in the nation last year. So that'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could say I'm biased, but you know, I would certainly think that, you know, UCF should be the odds on preseason favorite. I, you know, they're, they're not having conference meetings, you know, just because of everything going on. I don't think we've gotten the full breakdown of, of, of you know, tiebreakers and how they're going to decide who's in the conference championship game. I imagine it'll be similar um, in some respects to what the Big 12 has done, but then the Big 12 does a round robin. So it, it'll be kind of, kind of different. We haven't seen the details yet, but just based on what we know with how the schedule lays out, I think the best path and I think the best team, you know, both of those things put together, I think all signs that, that all signs pretty much point, point to UCF, I think, being the overwhelming favorite. Adam? Yeah, not much analysis to add there. I think the schedule piece is huge, right? So, you know, they talked about not leaving the state of Florida in November, but if you look really from October 3rd on, they only leave the state of Florida twice. You know, so six of eight games from October 3rd on are in the state of Florida, which is, which is huge. So basically that's, that's, that's two-thirds of the season that they get to stay in, in sort of warm weather and, and mostly home games when you count the Cow Stadium. For me, I don't – you know, I'm going to go on this, uh, this tangent of saying, hey, you, you, you're not the best until you can knock off the champ. And right now that's Memphis. You know, and they're returning, you know, some some talented players. Gainwell's back. Brady White is back as a as an experienced quarterback. Yeah, I know the staff changed a little bit, but, you know, they promoted from within, so there's familiarity on the staff as well. It's a home game. It's a Friday night. Obviously, we talked about we lost two Friday night games last year. I'm not saying that that's a curse on Friday nights, but it's still a factor. And so, really, that Memphis game to me is the one you circle in, in you know, black and red and, and orange and whatever color ink you have. Um, I think if you get past that Memphis game, yeah, the schedule breaks in your favor with the talent UCF is coming back. For me, it's not going to be a talent question. You know, Brandon, I said this earlier, you know, the Tulsa game wasn't about talent. It was about uh, logistics and it was about just the overall feel of the game that night. And I think that's the only thing that you think about is, is, are, is there anything on the schedule where that comes into play? I think Memphis comes to mind as one of those games where, you know, if we can, if we can get out of that one unscathed, I think the schedule breaks favorably. I kind of like the FAMU game on November 7th. Kind of gives you a bit of a buffer game there to, you know, I don't want to say we're going to take FAMU lightly, but obviously, you know, we, we've certainly had our, our way with them of late. So it gives you some time to maybe rest some guys going into Temple, Cincinnati, and the Cows. So I think that breaks in your favor. Schedule is there to be the favorite. You know, I think it really is going to come down to the optics and, you know, and some of the things that the team can't control, um, and that's crowd noise and their preparation. And I think if they can kind of get out of their own heads in those things, uh, I, I agree with the guys. I don't see why they wouldn't be favorites. But I think until you beat Memphis, um, you know, Memphis is still the top dog for right now. So until you knock them off, um, you know, I, I give them that respect for right now. Yeah, very good point there. And I would also, yeah, have to agree that uh, you got to take advantage of a schedule that is very friendly as far as travel goes. That's going to be a key thing. The one thing I'm hoping doesn't happen is, you know, we've had some bad luck over the years losing our big out-of-conference games. We lost North Carolina's road game a couple of years ago. We lost Georgia Tech. You know, I'm hoping we don't lose the Carolina game this year because of the, the current climate. But, uh, 
you know, all things being normal, it still looks like it could be a tremendous season uh, for the UCF Knights. So before we wrap it up, guys, let's uh, let you do your shameless plugs. Let people know where to follow you on social media and all of your content. Jason. Yeah, follow me at the real Beedy, B-E-D-E, on Twitter, and Knights247 is my website. Uh, you know, there's no sports going on, but still, you know, a good amount of recruiting stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. There's some recruiting stuff happening. Uh, Knights247 uh, is the place to go. So, Eric? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you can follow me at Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter and then uh, follow us at Black and Gold Banneret on UCF underscore Banneret. We do a weekly podcast. We just had Todd Dagenet this week, the UCF volleyball head coach, talking about what how this all affects the fall sports and kind of talk to him about that and, and certainly how they're going to cope with it. And we're on weekly. We, of course, have a lot of content coming out on blackandgoldbanneret.com. So go to uh, UCF underscore banneret on Twitter to follow that. And, of course, blackandgoldbanneret.com. I'll be writing some stuff there in the near future as well. And then just all the other stuff I do, you will be following through uh, Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter. All right, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, I, first all, I'd like to just thank you for bringing all of us to, together. It's been a incredibly uh, strange uh, few weeks here and just kind of your minds in a million different places. And, you know, I don't know where my mind was when we started talking, but, you know, it's been fun to just kind of forget about everything going on in the world and talk about UCF football and last season and, and all that stuff. So I've had a blast. So thank you for putting this on. And, yeah, uh, you know, I'm the publisher of, of UCFsports.com, have been for quite a long time, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at UCF Sports. Adam. Yeah, Twitter, you can follow us. Um, the show handle is at Sons of UCF. You can also follow my co-host, and that's Mike. Is, uh, he's at UCF Mike one uh, Sons of UCF show comes out each Wednesday mornings on the Nightline Sports Network. Uh, past couple shows, we've been lucky. We found some – we unearthed some baseball Hall of Famers that we haven't talked in a while. So happy to have Justin Pope and, and Dee Brown on the show. And so our goal – and I know folks are, are sitting at home and, and finding things to do – you know, our goal is to try to find some some former night athletes to, to bring on and and, uh, and talk to people and, and and at least give you give you an hour or so to take your mind off the current stuff and think about some fun stuff like UCF. So uh, again, follow us at Sons of UCF on on Twitter. Uh, show comes out each and every Wednesday. Yep, and Adam, of course, is one of my colleagues over at the Nightline Sports Network, where I do the AAC report to focus on all the schools in the conference outside of UCF and. Uh, it's, a, it's always, always some good information to be found there. Well, gentlemen, I do very much greatly appreciate each and every one of you for coming in and doing this. Uh, um, you know, thankfully, you know, gives you something to do. And uh, I certainly, again, thank you all for uh, taking part in this. Thank you. All right. Let's do thank it again. You, yeah, you got it. We'll do it again in August, too. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.